Amen. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. May he use it to store it up in our hearts that we may not sin against him. In 1781, Jonathan Edwards preached and said this, you have dreadfully provoked the God who holds you over the pit of hell. He holds you up much like a person might hold up a spider or some repugnant insect over a fire. God abhors you. His wrath towards you burns like a fire. He looks at you and sees that you are worthy of nothing else but to be thrown into the fire. In fact, his eyes are so pure that he can't stand to even look upon you at all. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his sight than the most hateful venomous snake is in ours. You have offended God infinitely more than any stubborn rebel ever offended his prince. Yet it is nothing but God's hand that holds you from falling into the fire moment by moment, end quote. That is taken from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the sermon title of a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1781, America. It is arguably the most uh, famous sermon in American history. And it was a Damascus Road conversion moment and Saul-like experience like you just heard read in God's word this morning for many who were in attendance of this sermon. Edward's entire sermon, if you go read it, warns any listener that the only thing keeping them from falling straight into eternal hell and torment is the mere pleasure and choice of God. The sermon highlights so well what you and I and anyone who comes to Christ for salvation. It highlights what we bring to the table when it comes to our own conversion. Nothing but fury, shame, and oftentimes even persecution. Those three things, fury, shame, and persecution, they are seen in Saul of Tarsus and in our text this morning. Our text starts with, but Saul. What you need to know is by the time it's over, as you heard, it's but God, right? But Saul was full of fury, full of shame, and full of a persecution, a persecuting heart. By the time it's over, but God has changed fury into faith, shame into salvation, and persecution into preaching. But how does that happen? Well, that's what we're asking. How can God, being rich in mercy while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, how can he convert gloriously, help a spider, a wretch? Well, he does it of his good delight by sending his one and only son. Why wait? Why wait till the end of a sermon to tell you that God sent Christ in the likeness of man? He lived a perfect life. Christ died the death you and I deserve. Christ rose. He lives now. He will return for us. Do you believe this? To gather here this morning as a member of our church, you're here to be equipped as saints to go, to go and do the work of the ministry. Do you believe this? Good. Do you believe it for others? I hope so. People in Nacogdoches, Texas, they need a Damascus Road type conversion like you just read about, church. 
See Saul's conversion today as we go through it as a reminder of your own, but also of your own calling to see theirs. But what of, you, what of those who are here that have gathered with us this morning apart from being a covenant member of this church? Sure, but maybe, maybe more begging the question, possibly not a believer yourself. Has your fury become faith? Has your shame been turned into salvation? Has your persecutions become preaching? For some of you, I will boldly say maybe it has not. Well, may this text illuminate to you the real need that we all face and that you face. If that is you, I urgently ask that you listen this morning to the text. It actually holds out hope for you to meet this Jesus that Saul met in our passage. It really does. So if you're trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone this morning, then receive this message. Receive it in hope that you too, like Paul, Saul become Paul, will go forth with the ministry. You can preach like him. This morning, if you're a Christian here, you can obey like Ananias. You can write like Luke. You can encourage like Barnabas. Remember, God does transform things after all. Three points of this passage, you've already heard of this. In Saul's conversion, we see fury turned into faith, number one. Two, we're going to see shame turned into salvation. And then three, we're going to see persecutions turned into preaching. Let's see that together, all right, in the text. Fury into faith. So listen, God can take our fury and our rebellion and sin, and he can turn it into faith. Whether it is as flagrant as Saul is violent in this text, or if it is as subtle and as neutral of a heart of unbelief, me and you, all people, are a raging fury of rebellion against God from the very beginning of our lives. God, in this text, turned Saul's fury against the church into a faith that helped build it, which is phenomenal to think about. Let me say that again, right? God takes Saul's fury against the church and turns it into a faith that helped build it. Let's see how. So you notice in verses 1 through 3, we're shown the full, unhinged fury with which Saul pursued his chosen sin. And what was his chosen sin, his favorite chief sin? It was self-righteousness. Self-righteousness in Saul. Self-righteousness is pride, and for Saul, that pride was being truly, violently manifested. In this way, as we look at him, verses 1 through 3 in this profile, the Bible really shows us the very thing that threatens to damn all of us to eternity into hell, sin. The separation from God and us is this chasm that Jesus taught in parabolic form cannot be crossed. It can be understood, sure, but it cannot be crossed lest someone comes and teaches and preaches and shows and lives a life that can then build a bridge. Well, in that way, sin is drawn out here in this whole story, and it's understood by the pride of Saul. We see prior to this text an example for the, all of the chapter 8, right, of Philip, literally the exact opposite of Saul, working in humility. But Saul now shows up in 9 doing what? He is disobeying God in zealous pride. There's nothing humble about the man. Threats and murder, it says here, fill his mind and mouth while he approves Stephen's death just two chapters before this. He's been imprisoning people. He's been hearing their screams. He's been beating them. He's likely been torturing them. His fury is within him, and it always has been as an unconverted man, but it cannot stay hidden. Listen, this is a, something to learn about sin, even in these first verses. Sin, you may try to hide it, 
like we all do, but eventually sin will find you out or it will find its way out of you, right? And that's what's happening here. His pride is as someone uh, called a Pharisee, which was basically a religious conservative group of Jewish men at this time. And it's so strong that it actually is, is willing to make business transactions. His furious commitment to rebellion against God and God's plan is able to actually think rationally, even to make a plan to go and to, and to uh, persecute. So look, look there. It says, you know, he, he went asking for permission to find any belonging to the way. See, Saul has in his head in fury the right way that he thinks is to correct, uh, to correct the nation of Israel's error. These are fellow Jews that are believing in Christianity. He wants to correct it. He thinks he wants to bring uh, the true balance to the public conversation. And what, what he tells himself is reasonable is playing itself out by him violently dragging people out of their homes, torturing them in the, in the, in near the, the prisons of the temple, making them commit blasphemy and then throwing them in prison. You see how out of control the flesh can get? When it says the way, belonging to the way, this is actually the, likely a term in the early church that denoted following Jesus, not Jewish ways. Jesus, not what Saul is intending to try to Correct. Saul, with all his fury for God, he says, our text makes very clear by Luke that he does not belong to this way. He's persecuting it. Can you imagine what it'd be like if somebody like Saul had a Twitter account or a Facebook page? I wish I could say you have to imagine that. Imagine him having a megaphone for his mission to a watching world. It would not be good. Worse than anything, I think, here's a man with a Bible in his hand, taking the Old Testament scriptures and literally beating others with it. A religious fanatic, furious in his mission, deceived to think that this will all end up helping someone. He can't actually believe this, can he? Here's the thing. Yes, he can. And you know this furious commitment to sin this morning. So don't be on a high horse this morning when you come to read about Saul of Tarsus. Okay, just look without. That's easier than stepping on toes, right? Look without. We see it every day. I mean, you can see the furious eye of, of the liberal demanding the murder of the unborn, right? And then you can see the furious eye of the conservative demanding the murder of the liberal. And that's just the start of political fury. Don't be political, pastor. You know I just stated some facts. You can see the fury of nations in others, can't you? Dictators in our day, tyrants on the edge of war or in it. I know you've seen the fury of addicts. You ever driven past somebody awkwardly out of their mind, having two conversations? The fury of self-righteous good old boys and girls is in front of you often. Hard workers right here in the great East Texas, gritting their teeth, smiling happy, offering Southern charm, furious, unknown about who they are internally, dead to sin. Alive to living. The fury of sin is very public indeed, and we see it well in others, like, like Saul has a habit of doing here. But looking within, we see it every day as well, don't we? You see, fury in sin, a commitment to loving sin, is a lot like a, a house within you, and it sets up in the living room of your heart. And as the leader of that house, it invites many guests over all the time. Guests that promise you life, but actually bring death. 
And like Saul, within every person, there is a raging fire of sinful desire, ready to suck in every good or evil thing it can get its hands on in the world like a vortex. The Bible's clear. We are all only full of fury and sin before we are full of faith. Like sheep, the Bible says, we have all gone astray. All are wicked. No one is righteous. No, not one. Even one killing others in the name of being righteous like Saul. But thanks be to God, right? For his stunning ability to take fury and make faith. Look at the rest of the verses in this section. Look at four through nine. We see how faith comes to such a furious person. We see how it appears to him. And man, it is glorious to behold. Brooke did such a good job of reading it to you. I hope you were noticing some things. Let me give you some quick notes on this conversion experience. Notice the posture. Saul is falling to the ground, right? Here's this proud fury man on his face. He's humbled. Notice the conversation. Jesus calls his name twice so that he makes no mistake of whether he's being addressed or not. Saul, Saul. (laughs) This shepherd knows his sheep. Notice the language. Jesus says that Saul is persecuting him directly. Not the church he's going to persecute. Not Christians, but him. This is personal. Notice the instructions. He must get up and wait for direction. He's not his own leader anymore. Notice the witnesses. The men know and hear the voice too, but this is not their experience of salvation, right? So Luke clearly contrasts that by showing them not seeing Jesus themselves. No, no, no. Saul, this is for your eyes. Behold the Lamb of God slain on your behalf. Notice the result. He can no longer lead himself. The proud has to be led. Being so hungry and thirsty for righteousness now, what does he do? He literally does not eat or drink anything for three days. Bring himself by faith up to the point of death. That's true conversion, man. Let his flesh perish after such an encounter. Who is he to stand before the Holy One of Israel? He's a worm and he knows it. He's like, I'm a wretch, I'm poor. Keep the bread and food away from me. Keep the drink away from me. Something's happening to me. Fury is giving way to faith. Let me offer an analogy of this true conversion. You know, because some will say, does he have faith? You know, he didn't pray to ask Jesus into his heart. Or he hasn't actually lost his scales yet. He hasn't been baptized. I mean, does he have faith? Hear me out. He has the start of it. I love Richard Sibbs. I love him. First of all, I just can't wait to meet that brother in heaven. He says that all it takes is a spark with our God because a spark contains all the elements of fire. All of it. A spark contains all the elements that is a roaring fire. And and here's for us in this moment right here, four through nine, I think the beginning of faith in Saul. We love to teach on the response. We should look at the regenerating qualities. And I love what A.H. Strong offers as an analogy to you and me uh, about faith. Think about it like this, okay? It's a picture you need to build in your mind. Faith is like a coupling on some locomotive cars. So imagine there's a locomotive and there's a bunch of train cars. A.H. Strong says this, the coupling joins a train of cars to a locomotive. The coupling has no power in itself. It cannot move a single car an inch. All the power is in the locomotive. 
But the coupling is the link by which the power of the locomotive is transmitted to the cars. So A.H. Strong concludes and says this, faith has no power in itself. It is not a ground of salvation. It is not a good work. It is merely that by which all the goodness and grace and glory of Christ comes to the sinner. Saul's fury has met its match in Christ. And his realization is faith. Because Christ has an irresistible goodness, a coupling of his heavy, dirty soul onto the locomotive of Jesus Christ, who he has persecuted, and he will forever from this moment on be absolutely different, radically transformed from fury to faith. It's concrete. Faith for Saul happens here. He's changed. He's changed. But what about his life? Well, here's the good news. God does take our fury and change it into faith. He also takes our shame and he turns it into salvation. Point two. Verses 10 through 19. Okay, so his fury was turned to faith, but we also see the details of this story showing us that his shame is turned into salvation. Like Saul, me and you are all raging with fury in our lostness as well. But we are also full of shame. When it's confronted, so was Saul. Now, the text doesn't explicitly tell us he was ashamed here. Let me make that clear. But this is a man uh, we know from later study, literally in this, in this book, said some things about his conversion. So in Acts 20, Paul is recounting his salvation but by not ignoring his shameful past but dealing with it. Okay? The text there says this in Acts 20. Just listen. These are Paul's words. He's testifying and he says, And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Or in Acts 26, years after that moment, Paul again recounts his past shame before King Agrippa. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Now, in these accounts, Paul is not glorifying his past sins boastfully. He's admitting them mournfully. This man was troubled by his past. So in this moment, back to our text now, we see it as a shame that needs to be dealt with, right? I mean, he has faith as he goes to Damascus, but he has physically stopped eating and drinking he seems to only have faith in this moment. He needs hope now. <laughs> he needs hope. He needs salvation for his shame. Notice how Luke reports to us how his shame becomes salvation. So we get verse 10 through 19. It's a lar the largest kind of section, section of a story. And it's kind of hilarious, I think, honestly. It's hilarious and powerful, this account of God you know, using a Christian as his means of grace to bring salvation, right? To bring the salvation of God fully to Saul. Now, we don't, we're not going to study it verse by verse for time's sake, 
But will you just for a minute with me put yourself in the, in the pews of the first Christian church of Damascus for a second, okay? And be with Brother Ananias for a second. Because that is where Luke takes us concerning Saul's conversion here. There's Ananias, right, enjoying, you know, another meal in Christ. Now, we don't know the exact time frame, but he and the others uh, there in Damascus have been Christians for at least some time because they've been there long enough to form a gathering and to begin to preach the word, take the scriptures and show Christ as Lord. They've been taking the Lord's Supper. They've been loving one another. Um, and now they've been there long enough to be found out, found out by Jerusalem, 135 miles away. So the church there and Ananias specifically in the text, they're trying to enjoy their new life in Christ together, right? People shared with them. So they love the idea of sharing with others, right? That's what they're doing. Well, sort of, till all of a sudden, and there's this whole sermon to be preached uh, on Ananias. Like, I think maybe when I'm not a young preacher trying to like, hold myself accountable to preaching more, I want to come back and just grab up you know, Ananias and just do a whole sermon on the guy. I can't do that for brevity. So let me say this. Ananias has more Jonah in him than Jesus. But like Jonah, who reluctantly goes to the people of Nineveh, Ananias does go in obedience to God. So let, let's do this. Two things for you as someone saved here today about Ananias. Number one, let, let it be clear that whether you like them or not, or you can endure the ideas they have or not, or you can be around the pagan sin they commit or not, hear me, God has called you as a Christian to the lost friends and family in your lives. He's done it just like he's calling Ananias in this passage. And God help us if we settle for comfort in our churches. This man went when it was hard. A second thing about Ananias. Let it also be clear that God is working salvation, not you. Ananias shows up with nothing more to say. He's got a bit of a Nineveh sermon. The way Jonah showed up to Nineveh and just said, repent, God's going to kill y'all. Right? He kind of shows up with nothing flashy. What does he show up with? He says, hey, uh, Saul, got great news for you. Jesus sent me here to speak the gospel and leave the rest with God, right? I mean, he literally shows up and he's like, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road. He sent me here. You're supposed to grain your sight, feel, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's enough, church. You show up to lost people in your life. You speak the gospel that God loves, God saves, God is good. Repent and believe the gospel. Will you leave the rest to God? You should. He will save. Again, a whole sermon here, but we must press on. Uh, I find it wonderfully encouraging, guys, that the moment Saul is able to get up and, and be washed clean, because I bet he hasn't bathed. I mean, if you're not eating and drinking, you're probably not taking a bath either. I don't know. That, that's conjecture. But point being, he's just sitting there in shame, thinking about, yeah, this is good news, but like, who, who is he? Like, I bet he hears the voice of Jesus and also the screams of the people he tortured. I just, I imagine him there and get this, the moment that he gets up to eat food and drink water, the moment that he has some scales fall from his eyes, which is literally a physical like happening where now his eyes are open again like a baby and he's literally born again. He sees, oh my, what a glorious thing God has done for me. The moment that the faith of God in him gets strengthened, we could say he's granted salvation, right? Like the, the faith is strengthened over his shame. It comes from the church. It comes from the church. 
Do you see where it says, for some days after this, he was with the disciples at Damascus? You should underline that. We read that and rush that way too quickly, but we need to see for some days, he was with the church. Amen. Oh, I love this. Our church's doctrinal statement here at RBC says this about salvation and specifically about being elected by God to believe. We say the election of individuals to life may be confirmed by its effects in everyone who truly believes the gospel. Listen to this. Election is the foundation of Christian assurance and confirming our election deserves our greatest diligence. What gives Saul hope for the shame of his past? What affirms his election even though he has shame? Is it some idea of, hey, know that you know that you know that you know confidence in his one-time conversion? You know, is it that? Is that what gives him assurance and, and hope in his salvation? No. It's regular fellowship with the saints. Wow. Wow. Let me ask you a serious question. Are you ashamed of the church? Are you ashamed of this church? If so, shame on you. We have in our statement what I read to you for a reason as a church family. One, because we forget that. Two, because people need to know Christ preached to them so that he may be in them, yes. But they also need Christ living in you and I around them. How else will salvation, if it comes by faith, be understood in its fullness, if not played out in God's plan, which is what? To give his church the means of grace to grow that fruit and to endure the times when sometimes there's a tear or a wheat that gets grown up amidst it. But you know what? Our good harvester will sort that out in the end. But we're called to diligence. What more do you have, Christian, than to uh, throw yourself on, for the rest of your life on assurance of election? That's what you have. And Saul sees it, but he can't see it on his own. On his own, he's in the straightway street in this house, gloomy, not eating, not drinking, sad and isolated. It isn't until God, who breathed the breath of life of him, then comes with a garden for him and says, hey, here's a garden. Like, here, Look at this awesome fruit in this other believer, Ananias, who with shaking, quivering hand reaches out to touch a wretched murderer like you. You think your hands were only made to spill blood, Saul. Let me show you some hands that do more. Right? I mean, it's beautiful. The church. This is God's chosen way to deal with shame in people's lives. Christ and Christ's people. I could cite loads of biblical accounts for you, Old and New Testament, where some saint falls into sin, falls into disgrace, falls into hopelessness, and it was the people of God used by God to call them out, oftentimes imploring them to repent first, turn from the error of your way, but then not just saying turn or burn, saying, no, 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 turn and return to God who is your source of life. Over and over again in the Bible, God takes the shame of Saul and he gives him salvation. Something that, thank God, this man grew up into. Because this baby in the faith right here in these pages of scripture is a giant. He, he is a mind ready to be unleashed on the world. Me and you sit here, hearing the gospel today, I promise it's because something Saul did. <laughs> I, I just, I'm telling you, God used this man, the greatest missionary to the Gentiles, right? How? 
Well, I'll tell you, he took his fury, he made it faith. Okay, he took his shame and his inability to think about his past, and he gave him salvation. But look at the, look at the best part in closing. Third point. He took a man of persecution, a persecutor, and he turned it, and you would guess, this is my favorite point, into preaching. Or we could say proclamation if it makes you uncomfortable. Because this is not just men. This is men and women that when God transforms their heart and, and takes them from an evil road, he can make them proclaimers of excellency. Now, they may not do it in the strict context. We don't need to get into that right now of a local church. But I will say this. This is very much a third point to apply to all, not just the preachers in the room. This point, I think, is going to blow your mind, or it should. If not, I think it'll eat you up with conviction and challenge, or it should. That's my prayer. God took what seemed to be the nastiest, gnarliest, meanest, most violent person working for Satan against the church. And when everyone thought that he couldn't change, much less before that Christian church, God made him the most preaching and disciple-making witness for the church to ever live. That's profound. Do you see in verses 20 through 30 of our text how many times this new babe in the faith is witnessing and doing the work of a called out one? It's pretty overwhelming. Will you look at it with me? Verse 20, immediately, so we ain't wasting no time. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Proclaiming immediately, he can't contain it. That is faith and salvation in action. Look at verse 22. It says, he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wait a second. Proving it? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord? Yeah. yeah he can't deny it, and he'll argue it till he's blue in the face. God hands this dude a trumpet, and he has one note, and he blows it till he dies. That's what God does for me and you when he saves us. Paul's was loud. But he started in verse 22. Look at verse 23 through 25. It's absolutely hilarious and crazy. Look at 23. It said, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. I mean, so it's like Luke's like they wanted to kill him. They really wanted to kill him. Like, they're like night and day watching, can we kill this guy? Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in the basket. Now, hold on a second. Wait, did you catch that in verse 25? His disciples? Listen, that's right. He's preaching the gospel and he's making disciples from day one. Whatever God calls him to do. Now, listen, I'm using air quotes for you, not for him, because this guy literally gets a physical calling from God and he's actually going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You can write it down. He knows what he's doing with his life. But I'm talking to a room full of people who, since you were growing up in America, you were called, what are you called to? What are you going to do? Before the calling, this guy knows very clearly what has been given to him from heaven. He has a mandate. He's going to do what his Lord did. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to make disciples. He's going to die. God, you fill in the blanks where that's going to happen. That's what Saul's going to do. Why do me and you get so confused sometimes by saying, yeah, I want to preach the gospel and make disciples, but I need to kind of have this other thing that is my life? No, no, no. Let that thing supersede all those things. Do that thing in those things, and you will find what? You'll find the strength that this man had. And I just love from the very beginning, literally his roots, he's discipling. Discipleship is essential to the church. Not just preaching, 
and seeing conversions. Because check it out. You know why discipleship matters? Like, yeah, we should say, hey, disciple, because Matthew 28, to go teach others also, so they'll keep preaching. But it's not just the continued preaching of the gospel in view. You know what else it is? Your personal good. Who's lowering this dude down a basket when people want to kill him out of a wall? His disciples. Like, it's good for him. We still have equivalence to this today. I mean, I reflected on one this last week. Maybe our lowering in the basket-like moments is babysitting your kids when you have to go out of town. Shout out to Harley, who's a far, Farley, Harley or Farley today, uh, from this last week, you know, and my sister-in-law. Disciples with us so that we can step out of the care we normally give to our children to go out of town and focus on something. I'm thankful for disciples. Maybe lowering the basket is like an elder care meeting where you know that your imperfect, sometimes rude, and arrogant pastors really care for you. Maybe that's discipleship, lowering the basket down. I know we've done it some. I can't wait to do it more. Maybe lowering the basket is like being there with tears of joy when we hold babies. We see marriages restored. We see addiction overcome when we see God do great things. Maybe lowering in the basket is pain when other tragedies seem to beset us, like constant discouragements, like depressions, like death. You see, when stuff breaks, you need discipleship. And if you wait until then to consider discipleship, stuff will break you. Let me say that again. When stuff breaks, you need discipleship. But if you wait until then to consider discipleship, that stuff will break you. But not Saul. No, preaching, making disciples, and immediately God uses it in his life. Verse 27, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, it said. Now, check it out. Do you see verse 27? You need to make note of this. That ain't Paul talking. This is what affirms him to the apostles in Jerusalem, Barnabas, this son of encouragement. Barnabas, son of encouragement. This Barnabas is encouraging, he's literally recommending to trust Saul to the apostles because the apostles were like, uh, no, (laughs) hold on, Mr. Saul. You were literally dragging my friends out into the street and killing them. Like, you did that. Don't come around here saying that you're born again. How is that? And there's Barnabas, like being awesome. And he goes and gets the guy and he commends him. And what does he commend him by? Hey, listen, y'all don't understand. This dude has set the world on fire with his preaching from day one. He preaches the gospel, and it's not without authority. 28 and 29. What did he do when he was in Jerusalem? They're like, all right, yep, green light. 28, 29. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. And what do you think he's doing, guys? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists. Are you getting overwhelmed? So God... He got that whole thing passed up with the apostles. Thanks, Barnabas. And now what is, you know, now he's now he can chill out, right? Like his denomination's happy. He's all settled into like a really good track that, you know, where we can say we're doing missions together in Jerusalem. And hey, things are good. He can sit back now, right? No. No, there's still work to be done. So much so he preaches to the point of a riot again. Preaching like a madman, making disciples everywhere he went. We read this and we think, what a radical life. God in heaven wants to bear witness to me and you. This is a normal Christian life. This is normal faith, normal salvation, gone public. Normal, not extraordinary, normal. It's convicting, I hope. It is for me. I'm sure it is for you. 
from persecutions to preaching. Now, Luke needs to be faithful to the account of history that he's giving us. He's going to dismiss Saul out of the way. Saul of Tarsus goes home. (laughs) Back to Tarsus at the end of our text today. And it's not until chapter 11, verse 25, that he's going to come back. And that's a bit of a way for us. But if we have to say bye to Paul today for now, let's do so by concluding that the message is pretty clear, is it not? Those who are truly possessing faith, the type of faith that is dispossessing the fury of sin, are those who truly are walking in salvation and dealing with their past shame, are those who proclaim loudly enough that which they now preach as standing in opposition to what they once formally uh, did, persecution. That's your summary. Saul becomes Paul, and in the account of Scripture we have of his life, he never, never puts on the persecutor or the shame or the fury of the old man again, at least not to the point to where we should doubt his salvation. This is not to say he is perfect, nor does he say that. My goodness, if you don't believe me, go read the whole book of Romans. You'll see his indwelling sin. But let's make something clear. He's changed. He's a different man. The old has passed away. The new has come. Ask in closing this morning, are you? Are you different? Does your heart palpitate when preachers ask you that? They don't ask you because they're mean. You go read Jonathan Edwards, you do yourself a disservice to only read sinners in the hands of an angry God. You would also need to read of all the great works where he told so many that were outside of the bride of Christ to repent and come find Jesus who's caring and loving. Our God that holds the spider that we are over the flame, he draws that up and it ain't a spider no more. Caterpillar would be a better analogy. God can transform you. Preach the gospel, church, to yourself. Preach the gospel to your family. Preach the gospel to your friends. Preach the gospel to your lost friends. Preach the gospel so that we can all see Saul's fury become faith. So we can all experience shame becoming salvation. So we can have the hope that God brings persecutors into his hope to give them preachers, to make them preachers. May it be the same for us. If you need any help whatsoever answering any of the questions about today that have been preached, please take the time after service to speak with me, Blake, or uh, any member of this church. We'd love the opportunity to speak with you. That being said, let's pray in closing. Let's sing about God's mercy, which is more than our our sin. And then we're going to have a time of confession taking of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope of Scripture, for the truth of it. Every, Every jot and every tittle is been fulfilled in you, Christ. You came not to abolish the law, but to uphold it perfectly. So God, will you make and take the fury of us sinners, the shame of our past, and the persecutions and the hatred we've had toward you and your church, and will you remind us of your transformative work? Oh God, give us faith again. Help us to grow up into salvation. And Lord, give us a voice to preach. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.